0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host today, Jillian Marie Jacqueline, and I'm honored to be sitting here with our guest, Dr. Sergio M. Gonzalez, who is joining us today to discuss his recent book, Mexicans in Wisconsin, which the Wisconsin Historical Society Press published in 2017. I've had the pleasure of knowing Sergio since our time together as graduate students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where we both were active members of our graduate worker union, the American Federation of Teachers, Local 3220. He's not only a colleague, but a good friend. Sergio is an assistant professor of Latinx studies with the departments of history and of languages, literatures, and cultures at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin where he teaches Introduction to Latinx Studies, a course in Citizenship and Belonging in America, and another one on Latinx social movements. He received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the spring of 2018 with a dissertation entitled I Was a Stranger and You Welcomed Me, Latino Immigration, Religion, and Community Formation in Milwaukee, 1920-1990. to his teaching and research interests include U.S. labor and working class history and immigration history, as well as the histories of Chicano and Latinx communities and religion. Along with his research and teaching interests in Midwestern Latinx communities, Gonzalez's service commitments include working with Marquette University's Hispanic Serving Institution Initiative. He also is excited to collaborate with scholars on an interdisciplinary endeavor called Building Sustainable Worlds, Latinx Placemaking in the Midwest, an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and Humanities Without Walls Consortium-funded project that examines the significance of Latinx efforts in building sustainable communities in both urban and small-town environments across the region. Dr. Gonzalez serves on the editorial board of Wisconsin 101, Our History and Objects, a statewide collaborative project exploring Wisconsin's diverse, interconnected histories through objects. Thank you for joining us here in your office at Marquette University during a busy day of teaching and meetings.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. So we'll jump right in Mm -hmm. if you're ready. Well, as you know, and I am keenly aware because I have never done it, writing a book while a graduate student is a major endeavor. What brought you to this research? And write this book while also working on a dissertation and pursuing your PhD.
1: Um, The book was an opportunity for me to share uh, the countless hours that we spend as graduate students digging in archives, um, reading secondary sources, um, talking to people in our communities, an opportunity to share all that academic research um, with my family and the community from which I came from. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be a first-generation college student. Um, my parents are both immigrants from Mexico, um, and they have certainly uh, given a lot for me to be where I am, they and the community from, uh, that I call home. And so um, every day that I spend uh, working on these very academic uh, works, uh, delving into theology, Um, and social movement building and sometimes abstract ideas, um, I'm reminded about um, where I come from and the importance of sharing all of that labor um, with my family and with my friends. And so this uh, public history project was an opportunity to take that academic history and turn it into popular history. Um, I'm really proud of the opportunity to take, you know, a 500-page dissertation and kind of distill some of its most important pieces into an accessible book um, for, for my parents and for my family.
0: And accessible it truly is. I read it and enjoyed it and learned so much being from Wisconsin as well about the long and deep history of um, Mexican um, community building and activism, as well as labor in Wisconsin. Um, So you must have seen a gap in scholarship as well, even though this is a public history, not an academic one per se. Um, I was wondering if you could discuss what your argument is if you have one in the book and what your major historiographical contributions are
1: Yeah I think there are there are several gaps in history both within that academic setting um, that we call home, but also within the larger conversation of public history. Um, in public history, my intent was uh, to place Mexican immigration, Mexican community formation in Wisconsin squarely within the state's history. Um, within our state, uh, when I was growing up taking fourth grade Wisconsin history, um, I don't ever recall talking about Mexican immigration to the state, but we surely did spend a lot of time talking about Germans and Poles and uh, and Scandinavians. and so So um, I know fully well from my own family's history that um, the ideas of migration and the concepts of of labor and movement to this state were as integral to us as it was to those other European descent communities. And so I wanted to make sure that this wasn't simply a a project of planting a flag and saying we were here, um, but to say that we are an integral part of it and that you cannot understand Wisconsin history without understanding Mexican immigration. Um, so in in that way, it's a it's a it's a broad argument that I'm trying to make in the book. Um, but it's one that I think is worthwhile not just for uh, academic historians, but for Wisconsinites um, near and far who call this state their home. As part of a larger project. Um, I infuse some of the elements of my dissertation which is an emphasis on religion and community formation and understanding religious sites as places for um, not only community formation but also social movement building. And so I talk about the fact that um, uh, the labor, the migrant labor movement that's born in the '60s in uh, places like Watoma and Green Bay, here in Wisconsin, uh, also have a home within uh, Catholic churches uh, where people came together to organize. Uh, or the 1980 sanctuary movement, um, which is born out of collaboration between uh, white, black, uh, Jewish, and Mexican um, co-religionists. And so, to understand that there are different places where people build community and different places where
0: they build movements. Fantastic. Um, I must say that, although not surprised, I was deeply impressed by the level of thorough research that you did uh, for the narrative that you created um, in Mexicans in Wisconsin. You do an exceptional job of discussing, again, the long history of Latinx immigration to the Midwest, not just people of Mexican descent, but also the broader Latino population in Wisconsin. Um, And you connect these local phenomena to broader national developments. Um, I'm curious how do you see this work contributing to our knowledge of the history of the Midwest more broadly especially mm-hmm. regarding Latinx
1: um, I'd greatly appreciate uh, what we could call a revival in regional studies um, specifically in the Midwest I think if For those of us who study Western history, we kind of take it for granted that this part of our work that we do to understand regionality as a central component, uh, as a central vector for understanding um, community formation. But uh, in the Midwest, we've kind of seen this renewed over the last few years. Um, When it it first came uh, to fruition, I was a little bit uh, shocked to see that there were community of colors missing within those conversations. Not just Latinos, but African-Americans, Asian migration, Arab migration, um, different communities that have likewise um, come to this region in search of something, uh, or have enforced this region because of something. And so um, I think it's important for us to broaden our understanding of who we consider a part of the Midwest and who we consider consider Midwesterners. Part of my work um, academically, uh, but also within the community as a, as a scholar activist is to um, define senses of belonging and to uh, understand that who gets to claim belonging um, and how that belonging is defined um, is historically contingent, um, and that it's been um, enunciated and um, contested across the entire uh, last century of of both Mexican settlement and settlement of other communities of color here in the Midwest.
0: So you do see your project as specifically Midwestern in scope um, in some sense of the word, and that this Midwestern regionalism is important for understanding broader national trends. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think for for Latino scholars, you know, there's a growing cohort of Latino scholars who study the Midwest. I'm fortunate to be a part of, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of our time together here, the This Humanities Without Walls Consortium of scholars across the country who focus their research on Latino, Latinx, Midwestern communities. Um, And part of our work is to understand Why? Why are Latinos coming here when we know that the largest Latino populations are often thought to be in California, uh, in the Southwest, or in places like New York or Miami. But in fact, the second largest um, Latino population lives in Chicago. Right? So it's important for us to understand that in terms of demographics, but to place that within a larger historical context. And the story that we tell about Latino migration to the Midwest is different from the story we tell um, in the Borderlands region or uh, on the East Coast or in places like Florida. Um, some of the motivations are the same. So, of course, a concentration on labor, um, on the economics of labor and the economics of labor recruitment. Um, we can find parallels across the region. Um, but oftentimes, the history of European migration, European immigration to the Midwest can also serve Serve as a parallel in a way that it would not work in places like Los Angeles or San Antonio. Um, and understanding questions of uh, assimilation or a lack of assimilation, um, interaction with social institutions and government institutions um, can sometimes be a particular story to a place like Milwaukee than uh, that you would see in a place like, like Texas.
0: It's very interesting because having grown up in the Fox River Valley, Wisconsin which is um, a region of the state that uh, plays a pretty significant role in uh, the story you tell in Mexicans in Wisconsin. Um, I certainly uh, was aware of some people of Latino and ethnic Mexican descent um, in our community. I had friends um, that identified as such, but it seemed to be a rather small minority of the population in a city like Appleton, which is where I grew up. Um, but I got a sense from Mexicans in Wisconsin that actually, um, although um, maybe not my majority percentage of the population, that actually um, Latinos had um, been present in the state a lot longer um, than people have, some people have thought about, um, and that maybe due to the way that labor economies are structured in the state, I don't know if this is broadly saying something about the Midwest, or Wisconsin specifically, that it maybe has something to do about labor patterns, um, that uh, there has been this sort of overshadowing of Latino history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's. I think there's definitely something to that. You know, when we talk about um, Latino migration uh, to the Midwest, it often is that word migration, but we don't think of the term immigration or settlement, right? So, um, I think oftentimes the history or our focus on latino settlements in the midwest is is that um, idea of following the migrant stream coming up uh, for seasonal labor uh, following the crops as they come through and in some ways that um, if we focus merely in that story we would think that perhaps um, communities are transient that um, they don't form solid bonds and they don't stick around in those in those areas Um, but we know that the first Latino settler or arrival here in Wisconsin, and arrived in the 1880s. And he was a classically trained musician, and he was recruited here because of his skill set as a violinist. His name was Rafael Baez. He settled here in Milwaukee. Um, and he settled here and stayed here for the rest of his life. We can look at places like Cassville, Wisconsin, um, we can uh, where in the 1910s, Mexican workers worked on the rail line. Um, and they settled there for a period of time um, and actually integrated themselves into the community. And throughout the state of Wisconsin, we have seen instances of both uh, migrant workers, of course, uh, coming to work. Uh, in places uh, like Potomac, working in the cucumbers, or places like Door County working in the cherry industry, um, but also settling in places like University of Oshkosh um, in the 1960s and 1970s and, and working to make a home for themselves. In 2018, of course, one of the, the largest, or one of the most important conversations we're having is not about migrant workers, but in fact, uh, about permanent workers in the dairy industry here in Wisconsin. Of course, Wisconsin, the number two dairy producer in the country, heavily dependent on Mexican descent work, on ethnic Mexican work. And these are not migrant workers because the dairy industry is not a migrant um, industry. And so uh, the industry is dependent 24-7 on Mexican hands um, responsible for doing that work. And those people, of course, are looking for ways to make homes for themselves in the small rural communities that perhaps uh, 10 years ago had fewer than 100 Mexican residents and now may have over 1,000. And so the questions that we ask historically about the 1920s and the 1950s are as relevant today as they ever have been.
0: It's actually so interesting that you bring the dairy industry up, because just last weekend I was at um, a family reunion uh, located on a still-in-operation dairy farm that um, has been around since 1852 and has relied on migrant or seemingly migrant mm-hmm. labor uh since its inception and interestingly um the matriarch of that farm uh talked to me quite extensively about um the use of ethnic mexican labor in the 1980s and 90s um and the continued reliance of um latino workers to this day not only in the dairy industry but also in local factories mm-hmm. um i don't know if this has to do with like declining white rural populations um but uh it's really interesting
1: yeah no i think there, there's so many factors part of it is the declining white uh rural population um there's a general outmigration in the state of Wisconsin and a general uh, lowering of demographic growth in the white community and uh, the white population. Um, we see a consolidation of some of these uh, smaller family farms uh, over the last 30, 40 years as many of them have consolidated into either um, industrial uh, dairy industries or as um, individual families struggle to keep their um, their farms, uh, afloat, right? And as you mentioned, some of these farmers can trace back their lineage to the 19th century. Um, and they are uh, looking to transform their labor system um, in line with the circumstances in which they're living. And so that means that instead of um, looking to merely family labor to do some of this dairy work, as may have been the case in the early uh, 20th century, um, they have to turn to Mexican workers. Um, the question I think we have to ask ourselves then is in what ways are Mexican workers accepted into those communities and what are the living and working conditions that those Mexican workers are navigating as they as they come to those spaces. As a historian, I'm interested in asking, you know, are those situations different from the ones that uh, beet workers faced in the 1930s when they arrived uh, in central Wisconsin? Um, are they similar to the ones in the 1960s that cucumber workers protested against and formed labor unions around? Um, or have... Uh These dairy owners and these employers learned lessons from those time periods um, it's an open question
0: definitely, and I think that you're hinting at my next question here, which is um, the large time frame that you cover in Mexicans in Wisconsin, and I'm curious if you would be willing to discuss the challenges and importance of studies like this one.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, we are often trained as graduate students to do um, bite-sized or manageable projects. Um, and I think it's important for us, um, for those, especially for, us, for those of us who do hyperlocal studies, um, as both you and I uh, try to do in our work, um, to really um, contain some of our work so we can dig into the meat of family lives and of community formation. But it's also important for us to zoom out and understand that within a larger chronological perspective, a larger regional perspective, a larger transnational perspective, right? To put this story in a conversation for two reasons. One, because we want to understand that the people who live in those spaces are interconnected with people living across the Western Hemisphere, uh, living across the Americas. Um, but it's also important for then our colleagues who don't study what we study to understand that it's important. For them to understand these communities and to get to know them, um, writing a one hundred year history is difficult. I had I had to lose a third of this book. My the press asked me to, to chop a third off so that it would fit within the the page limits that they usually have for this this series, People of Wisconsin series, um, which is painful because those are that's thirty percent of a book that contains the histories of people who made Wisconsin their home, um, which means that it's my responsibility then to find ways to integrate those, those stories, those memories, um, those contestations in different ways into the book. And I try to do that in different ways. Sometimes it's not in the written text, but it's in the community presentations that I do. And so if I'm giving up a community presentation in Green Bay or Racine or Waukesha, or Madison, I try to style those conversations to be attentive to the local as much as it is to the state, the
0: national, and the transnational. So your work is very public in that sense. And um, it also, I would imagine, connects to your teaching in some way you say it has like to. It has yeah. to.
1: Um, we we can't be scholars if we don't think about our scholarship as a form of education. Um, and so I think it's very difficult to disentangle our work that we do in the classroom um, mm-hmm. from the work that we do on the page to the work that we do within the community. And so those those three central components of the professoriate, the, the, the teaching, the research, and the service all have to be intertwined. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be at a university that values... Um, to value is the research that I do but also heavily invites me to bring that research into the classroom. And so every one of my lesson plans, whether it's um, in my freshman introduction, uh, freshman class, a class built around questions of citizenship and belonging in the United States, or if it's in my Latinx uh, intro to Latinx studies course, um, always comes back to a local perspective. Often it's Wisconsin because that's where I call home and that's where many of my students call home. Um, but the local can also be other small case studies. And so I want my students to understand that these bigger questions that we're asking, who gets to belong in this country, who is an American, um, how do we define citizenship, what is Latinidad, Um, all of these can be understood through the individual and through the personal.
0: Fantastic. Um, Your students are very privileged to have you. I'm sure that they really enjoy your courses, and I'm really happy to hear that a place like Marquette um, encourages you to bring your scholarship into the classroom rather than just sort of focusing on um, sort of blase normal history classes or normative history classes. Um, Well, you've hinted at this quite a bit, but... um, I'm curious about whether or not your work has a political component to it. um, And uh, if you see it in any way, shape or form connected to the contemporary political climate in the Midwest, um, as well as the broader United States. Um, And also, is there an activist component uh, to the scholarship that you produce? Mm -hmm. And if so, how do you reconcile that um, in the way that you inform others about your book?
1: I think the, the driving political component of my work and of my research is educative and in that I am trying to expand the scope of how we understand some of these foundational questions about U.S. history, about Latino history, um, about questions of belonging. And, and in that way, I think it's it's perfectly fine to say that Um, it is political to try to broaden who we um, define as belonging in these spaces, um, whether it is in the city of Milwaukee, the state of Wisconsin, or the United States. Um, I, you know, I've been trained as a a historian, um, but I've also been trained uh, within ethnic studies and within labor history, and both of these strands, these uh, strands of discipline of history, have a strong understanding of um, grounding our work within the communities in which uh, we study. And oftentimes within the, st- the places that we call home. Um, I think it's impossible for me to separate the fact that I study the place where I came from, um, where many of my family members still live, and fortunately for me where many of my students come from. Um, my students are hungry to understand their world within a larger historical context. They come to class prepared to ask questions. Um, we're talking about Asian exclusion or Native American citizenship in the 19th century um, or Reconstruction or suffrage. They want to know what it means to them here in Melbourne. They want to know what it means to them here within the homes that, they're, um, that, that, that they, they live within. And so uh, I th- I'm sure that there are plenty of historians who are uncomfortable doing that type of work. And I would never uh, assume that everyone should do it. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to have that research kind of built into what I do. Um, and so I bring that into the classroom. Outside of the classroom and outside of the university, I have been uh, proud to serve in a number of capacities of service to, to my community. Um, you know, both of us were active uh, in the Teaching Assistance Association, the American Federation of Teachers 3220, our, our labor union. We're both labor historians. I'd like to think that we both bring um, our research into our work. Um, it's impossible to separate those two. Um, Over the last two years, as our nation has grappled even more deeply with questions of immigration and of belonging, I have found it to be my obligation to um, include my voice in those conversations. And so, in Madison, over the last year, I served as an organizer for the Dane Sanctuary Movement, uh, the Dane Sanctuary Coalition, um, working with religious congregations to delve into the discernment process of whether or not these faith communities would become physical sanctuaries for uh, our undocumented sisters and brothers. Um, and I can bring in the research that I've done on the sanctuary movement here in Wisconsin and across the country as a reference point to understand that social movements for uh, immigrant justice uh, did not begin in 2018 um, and that there are lessons to be learned from past struggles.
0: Well, I don't have any more questions <laughs> on that regard, because I think that you just about covered all of it. Um, though, again, you're you're getting to this next question I had, and I didn't have it on the set of questions that I sent you. So we'll see how you feel about answering it. Um, but you do uh your your reading your acknowledgments was um very moving for me, um, and I imagine uh emotional to write. Um how do you see yourself as able to talk about the stories that you write about with your family members? What type of reaction do you get? Because I know for some people who Mm -hmm. write um, about like deeply personal subjects like this, um, there often is sort of a disconnect or an inability to discuss these topics. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think we all have to come to conversations on why we study what we study at our own pace. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you that when I was in graduate school, um, there were plenty of times where I had professors ask me, why I study what I studied, which is a generally good question to ask a graduate student. But then I had professors who also asked me if it was appropriate for me to study the community from which I came from. And, you know, we can have this conversation. I'm not sure if you've ever had those uh, same interactions with members of the professoria, but to me, it seemed counterintuitive um, to not study something that I was passionate about. And, Passionate in, in its many dimensions, right? Because um, if I'm going to spend six years of my life as a graduate student um, digging the archives and writing a dissertation, I, it has to be something that I'm interested in. Um, and if I'm going to serve as a public face for this history, I also have to have some sort of connection to it. And that, that that's for me, um, has to be a, a guiding principle. And so um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family um, that understood history very deeply. We didn't speak about it like historians do. Um, but we're a family of immigrants um, and uh, my parents and my grandparents made many decisions that perhaps they didn't understand were uh, part of larger transnational conversations but they certainly were um, and we talked about them in our own way, in our household. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household that uh, valued labor rights and immigrant justice rights um, and that had me in the street at a young age marching and picketing uh, for, those, for those causes. And so it was impossible for me to separate the lived experience of uh, these movements and this idea of community formation from the history, which is something that I lived and that my family lived. And so um, I think there are, there are plenty of graduate students who who uh, enter into graduate school and, and don't know why they want to study what they want to study. And that's part of the process that we have to come to, um, to work that out individually and and hopefully feel comfortable enough to share that with
0: others. Thank you. Well, and lastly, I was wondering if you would be willing to tell us about your current work, mm-hmm. um, if you'd say a bit about your most recent project, um... And why historians of the Midwest should be keeping their eyes peeled for your future publications.
1: Yeah, so I am uh, fresh out of my doctorate, and I am still limping away from the defense table and trying to uh, figure out what comes next. Um, Here at Marquette, as I'm in my first uh, first semester as an assistant professor, my obligation is to get my teaching in order because my primary obligation Mm -hmm. is to my students. And so um, once I have my feet under me, which I think I'm getting there, um, now with my students, I'll start to transition Mm -hmm. to... More take that dissertation and, and turn it into a manuscript and, and hopefully share it with a larger community. Um, my dissertation, as I mentioned, looks at um, religious sites and places uh, of faith as locations for community formation and social movements, and so my project starts in the 1920s with the arrival of the first large Group of Mexican industrial workers here to Milwaukee um, and you know I start this story looking at the development of a mission chapel a Catholic mission chapel um, as the only place in the city where Mexicans felt comfortable in interacting with with white Milwaukeeans it was this idea of a shared faith that brought them together a shared Catholicism um, and that site became a central location for community formation but also for leadership and political participation I stress that story across the 20th century, looking at migrant worker movements, um, looking at the Chicano and Puerto Rican uh, liberation movements here in Milwaukee, and it finishes really with the sanctuary movement, um, as Milwaukeeans of different faiths, of different ethno-racial identities, of different class backgrounds, uh, came together under the shared purpose of offering asylum for Central American refugees who had been denied it by the United States government. Um, And that movement was truly transnational. It was interfaith and it was interracial. It was an opportunity for Milwaukeeans to come together and to realize that they had a shared purpose to offer some sort of safety, uh, to offer a sense of community uh, to their sisters and brothers from Central America fleeing uh, repression, fleeing civil war. And of course, I like to think that all of these topics Um, all of these questions have a a burning resonance in 2018 and so as i work to transition that manuscript or that dissertation into a manuscript um, i'll be working continuing my work in the community um, and trying to share this with as many um, uh, populations hopefully outside the academy as i can
0: thank you Mm -hmm. well dr sergio m gonzalez i truly enjoyed reading your book and our conversation today Um, solidarity brother. I look forward to our next conversation and um, I am your host Jillian Marie Jacqueline and we hope you tune in again for the next issue of Heartland History.
1: Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook until next time.